Hayes, Alexander, Shabbat for three, bang, oh! will get it for the win. What's going on, guys? Welcome to the first of many episodes for the 2021-22 NBA playoffs. Before we get started, please make sure to subscribe on YouTube at Time Dripper Podcast, Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and of course to follow us on all social media platforms at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Dime Dropper Pod. Wow, here we are. I'm not going to talk about the Clippers, so if that's what you're looking for, you're not going to get it. Uh, the last vlog will be coming out tomorrow, and I will have some sort of like tribute video kind of recapping the season uh, for everybody. So we'll check that out. Make sure you check that out. Also, make sure you check out the season, the series previews I did. None of the series are over, so make sure you tune in and check those out because it was great collabing with other people. Make sure you tune in with tap in with those guys as well. I was really happy to be blessed and joined by other content creators. But let's get right into it because it's a lot to talk about. I watched every single game for you guys, just like I did last year. That's the reason why I didn't get to go live last night. I watched every single game. By the way, I'm noticing the view count is going up as the playoffs are here. So thanks for the support. I know there's no Clippers or Lakers. So LA, my fans, you know, my subscribers, Dime Dripper fam. It's a little disappointing, but we're all basketball fans above everything else, right? And playoffs are something that you can look back on my vlogs years and years down the line, see what I was saying, whatever. We got the receipts. I'm going to start in order. So let's start with the Utah Jazz and the Dallas Mavericks. My least favorite series, to be honest. But, you know, it's playoff basketball. No Luka Doncic, obviously. So you knew, just like I talked about in the preview with Nat, in the Western Conference preview, it's going to be a lot of Jalen Brunson and Spencer Dinwiddie. Can they get one game in Dallas and give maybe Luka a chance to come back in Utah? Well, they started out the game really well. They led 23-20 at the end of the first quarter, and I tuned into this game late in the first quarter. And one thing that was extremely apparent from Dallas right away, their defense has changed tremendously. We knew this from the stats. We knew this by watching them this year a little bit. But now that we get to watch them, with a magnifying glass here in playoff basketball, you can see, and you can see it not just with them, but with a lot of teams. By the way, if I cough throughout the course of this episode, it's because I don't know what's going on. My throat's been like really dry. The Jazz, they have everything to lose. You know, there's been a lot of talks about, or a lot of talk about they're going to break the team if they lose, if they fall short. There's a lot of pressure on them if it's gone stale or not. And the Mavericks were kind of showing us why. Because their defense was sharp, and you're seeing it with all these teams right now in the playoffs because the teams that are good guard and you're seeing all these best defensive teams in the league know their coverages and when I say know their coverages that means know who you have to switch on know who you want to go drop coverage on know who you want to hedge hard and focus on your uh, rotations to recover behind you all that good stuff and the Mavericks were pretty on point with everything that they wanted to do and they were making life difficult even though they don't have any standout defensive personnel outside of like Dorian Finney-Smith Maxi Kleba, Dwight Powell have been, they've been good this year. But one thing that stuck out early in the first half was that Donovan Mitchell was really off. 
He was just missing shots that he normally makes. He was forcing it a bit. Rudy, Escar Gobert, got one shot attempt. We talked about this in the in the series preview that Rudy and Donovan Mitchell, it's clear there's some kind of neglecting of one another. At least Donovan's neglecting him on offense, damn near. He's getting the screen and he's not even looking to pass him on the roll. Two passes per game, they said he averages. One shot attempt in game one for Escar Gobert. One. Five points overall. And to be honest, it's extremely unfair because he was holding down the fort completely on defense as he normally does for this team. Three blocks, 17 rebounds. So when a guy is getting 17 rebounds and he's your safety on defense, he's basically bailing you out of all your poor perimeter defensive mistakes and you're not rewarding him on the offensive end like that, it's just not... (laughs) Remember, this is a game of humans, not chess pieces. And the chemistry for the Jazz is very apparently worse than last season. And I think this is a big reason why. Now, one, per- I think Donovan, too, one didn't realize that and sometimes needs to take a step back and realize that this Jazz team actually has some, some weapons. One of those weapons being Boyan Bogdanovich, who they missed in 2020 in the bubble when they blew that 3-1 lead. And I thought he was their best player offensively in this game. He a couple times took Spencer Dinwiddie right to the block and got to the basket on him. There was one beautiful movie he had in the first half with Dinwiddie in the low post where he had a nice little drop step over his, over his right shoulder and went in for the layup. And then there was another time where he had a nice hang dribble hesitation, go right to the rim. So if Bogdanovich is going to show that he's got these kind of chops offensively, which we know he has the shot-making ability, but in terms of isolation creation, if you could post up Bogdanovich against guards, I don't know about forwards versus forwards, but definitely against guards, he's shown he showed in this game with Spencer Dinwiddie, he could score whenever he wanted. You got to feed him the ball more. He was getting double-teamed. He was making the right plays. Also, Mike Conley, another guy that can create, another guy that's actually going to look for Rudy on these pick and roll lobs and on these pick and roll reads and is good at reading the defense, has a floater, is a guy you can't really go underneath the screen on. So Donovan needs to be more unselfish. The Jazz led 45-43 after one half, and that was way too dangerous of territory in terms of, yeah, not without Luka Doncic, that's how much you're winning by. I understand you're on the road, but the Mavs missed a lot of open threes. The Mavs were 9 of 32 from deep, only shot 28%, and yes, they were struggling to create shots. Yes, Jalen Brunson was 9 for 24, Spencer Dinwiddie 6 for 15. Combine that together, that's 15 for 39 for the guys that you need to play big if you're going to win games without Luka. But the fact that they shot that poorly and only lost by 6 points tells me a lot about how much trouble the Utah Jazz are truly in in this playoffs. And in the second half, Donovan Mitchell started turning up finally. Third quarter, he was getting to the rim at will in that pick and roll. He hit a three. He hit a mid-range. He started cooking. Reggie Bullock, by the way, for the Mavs, got a lot of solid looks in the first half to hit threes, but just didn't make them. But because, despite these scoring droughts, though, for Dallas, their defense was keeping them in it. And even though Donovan took over, the Mavs, The Jazz outscored the Mavs 28-22 after three. So they were up eight going into the fourth. I thought they were going to run away with it. They were kind of cruising for a little bit. But the Mavs didn't quit. They didn't quit at all. And they came back and fed off the crowd. Royce O'Neal. I'm sorry, not Royce O'Neal. 
Reggie Bullock finally got some threes to fall. One of them was a big corner three that got the game into a one-possession game. I remember it was either a three-point game or two-point game. And you th- and the Mavs were getting a lot of home-centric calls. And we saw that a lot throughout not just that game, but a lot of games this weekend with a lot of home teams getting the you know, big benefit of the officiating. The Mavs were getting to the line and starting to slow down the game and inch their way back. And for a second, you thought Utah could blow it. We've seen the Jazz blow so many leads, obviously going back to the bubble at 3-1 last year against us, and then, of course, this year against us in the regular season a couple weeks ago in that vlog, and you thought maybe it would happen again. But they were able to find a way to get through, and the play that sealed the game was Donovan Mitchell taking a step back and realizing Boyan Bogdanovich has a mismatch. He's been our best player all night offensively. He threw him the ball. Bogey got double-teamed. Cross-court pass, got the defense in rotation, and an extra extra pass was made to Royce O'Neal, who pump-faked Spencer Dinwiddie again, another bad defensive play, terrible closeout, and almost slipped trying to recover. Just just bad, just terrible. Royce O'Neal, one pump-fake, sidestep, hits the dagger three, probably the most memorable shot of his NBA career, sealing the game one victory for the Jazz. That made it 95-91. Rudy, you can argue Escar Gobert, was the player of the game because his defensive presence was so vast. Like, he was doing a good job even moving his feet, just snuffing out everything and changing shots at the rim. You know what he does. Uh, Although, again, there's just something about the way this guy's praised to me. It's just, it's it's like you either hate him or or you like him and think he's like one of the most generational defenders ever. I think he's one of the best defenders of this era. I think he's one of the best shot blockers of all time. But I would take so many defenders before I've seen him. He's nothing like I, nothing that I haven't seen before. He's just a great rim protector with great timing and long arms. And solid moving his feet. That's as far as I'm going to go. He's the Mark Eaton of this era with more mobility. He's not Ben Wallace. I don't even think he's better than Matumbo or Alonzo Mourning. And I don't even think he's a better defender than Tim Duncan. Or Garnett, obviously. But that's my opinion. You want to debate that, you can go in the comments. But I just don't think he's that great. He's cool, though. He's really a great rim protector and made a huge impact on this game. And even though I despise the guy, it doesn't cloud my analysis of him. So 99-93 was the final, as you can see, with the Jazz and the Mavs. The Jazz steal a home court advantage, and they got what they came for. Now the question is, will the Mavericks be able to get one game in Game 2 to give Luka Doncic a chance to come back in Utah and say, we got a series, we still got a chance to get out of this second round. The stat lines, Dorian Finney-Smith, solid game. He and Reggie Bullock each played 44 minutes. That's a lot. The Mavs only went eight deep. 14 points for Finney-Smith, four of seven from the field, and two of five from deep, so he shot really well. Reggie Bullock, it felt like he was bricking a lot, but his stat line ended up looking pretty good. 15 points for him in 44 minutes, as I said. Five of ten from the field. Three of eight from three. So he also shot well. And then Spencer Dinwiddie, as I said, 22 points, four rebounds, eight assists, four turnovers, six of 15 from the field, 0 of four from three, though. If he had just made a three or two more, could or a three or two, I should say, could have really helped the Mavs. 10 of 16 from the line. 
That's also concerning. So he got to the line 16 times but missed six free throws. Since when does Spencer did what he missed that many free throws? And those could have made a difference in the game completely. So you're going to need better from Spencer in game two. And I think you're going to get better from Spencer in game two. Jalen Brunson, 24 points, seven rebounds, and five assists. Only turned the ball over two times, so I thought he took care of the ball better. Nine for 24 from the field. One of three from three. And that's about it for the Mavs. For the Jazz... Royce O'Neal, what's crazy is that three he made was the only shot he made all night. So ice in his veins to make that shot. That was huge. As I said, Rudy, 5.17 boards and three blocks. 0 for 1. Just ridiculous. Mike Conley, 13.6 of 12 from the field. Six rebounds, three assists. He did turn the ball over four times, though, which is too much. But 6 for 12... If you're shooting 50% and you're shooting 50 from three, I believe you need more shots and more touches than that. And that's always been a problem of mine with Conley throughout the course of his career. It's like he almost sometimes doesn't understand how efficient he is. So be more aggressive. And Donovan Mitchell, who I want to say this too, because I feel like I've been extremely nice to Donovan over the years and not really gone on him for much, but I'm starting to see the flaw in his game. He does too much. He needs to understand that sometimes... He needs to move the ball. There are a lot of possessions where he comes up and just tries to run his... He wants to screen right away, and that can often lead to one-pass possessions or no-pass possessions, and I always say, I just don't think that's good for rhythm, and I don't think that's good for getting the most out of your team. And I think that he has players on his team that can score. Boyan Bogdanovich had 26 points, 5 boards, and 4 assists on 11 for 20 from the field. That's 55%. 2 of 6 from deep. So Bogey is showing you he can get a bucket himself and not just be a spot-up shooter. Donovan Mitchell, 10 of 29 from the field, 2 of 6 from 3, 10 of 11 from the line, so he did finish at the rim. 6 rebounds, 6 assists, 3 turnovers, but 29 shots. You're shooting 9 more shots than Bogdanovich, even though he's shooting far more efficiently than you. I just don't really rock with that. And I noticed it in the moment that Donovan was shooting too much. So that's going to be something to keep an eye on, guys, later down the line because it could get dangerous. It could get dangerous for the Jazz, and it's going to get ugly real quick. Anyway, let's move on to the next game, and that is the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Memphis Grizzlies, my personal favorite series of the Western Conference, Anthony Edwards. That's where we're going to start. Anthony Edwards and the Minnesota Timberwolves Threw the first punch to Memphis. And again, as I talked about with Nat in the preview, the Memphis Grizzlies have as much pressure on them as any team in this playoffs. Not to win the championship, but just to prove that they're legit. A two seed over the Warriors, predicted by many to finish around the play-in range. Finishing with the two seed, they've probably been the most surprising team of the season. So they now have expectations. But there's something very interesting about this matchup that they have first round with Minnesota. When you think Memphis, you think of a young team that led the league in rebounding, I'm sorry, rebounding blocks, steals, that will run you off the court. They ran my Clippers off the court multiple times this season. But what's so interesting about the Grizzlies matchup is that the Minnesota Timberwolves are also a young and athletic team that are also inexperienced. So even though the Grizzlies have more experience than the Wolves and should win this series, the Minnesota Timberwolves have some advantages. For example, as I said, they match the athleticism, but also they have three star caliber players. Whereas to me, the Grizzlies only have one and they have some really good role players and they play better defense. 
but you saw from the Wolves in this first game that they have a little bit more of a diverse attack when it comes to the nitty-gritty. And that's what people need to understand. And as I get older, it consistently gets reiterated to me. And this is not a game one overreaction because I'm not saying the Wolves are going to win this series. I'm not changing my pick. But playoff basketball is entirely different than regular season basketball. The game slows down, the officiating changes, and it comes down to the dudes, as my man Ricky G would say. Your stars. Having more stars helps. Because when it's time to get a bucket, you're going to need guys that can combat maybe poor spacing, maybe some hand checking that the refs are going to let go. You're going to need guys to make big plays. And the Timberwolves have three guys like that. Anthony Edwards picked up right where he left off against my Clippers. He was coming off screens and pulling threes left and right. And they were putting Steven Adams in that pick and roll. And with Steven Adams, he's not going to be able to switch on Ant. So he's going to have to either hard hedge or he's going to have to drop. In the beginning, they started out and drop. Anthony Edwards is coming off those screens and walking into those threes and jumpers. And the Grizzlies, you know, in the beginning is a lot of adrenaline. You, you know, teams start out slow sometimes. You saw that in the Celtics-Nets game as well. And the Grizzlies were the ones that started out slow in this one. And another guy who I thought was doing a really good job was Carl Anthony Towns this game. Steven Adams was guarding Carl Anthony Towns, so Carl Anthony Towns was setting the screens for Ant, and he was picking and popping. But instead of just shooting the first chance he got, even though he did make a couple threes, he went, he only shot five of them. He had this rip through, go to the basket, go into the body, take the space in front of him on that pick and pop because he had a lane. Like, you know, when you pick and pop, you sometimes have that lane in front of you. And Carl Anthony Towns was doing a great job of attacking the space like a guard and finishing well around the basket. He was way improved from the game against my Clippers. And he seemed like he had a statement to come back, statement to make, to bounce back. And I thought he also posted up in slightly better areas. I thought that he drew some double teams. He played like the Carl Anthony Towns that you want to see if you're a Timberwolves fan. And the stat line reflects that. 29 points and 13 rebounds on 11 of 18 shooting and only five three-point attempts. He made two of them. So that was the best game Carl Anthony Towns has played in his playoff career. There's no doubt in my mind. 43 minutes played as well. And if you're the Memphis Grizzlies, I just think that they did not come out with the right intensity on the defensive end. They've made a big mark on defense this season, but... 41 points allowed in the first quarter at home. I know the Wolves came out hot, and they were really hot all game, but there's no excuse for that. They were getting way too good of looks at times. You know, Patrick Beverly was scoring in the first quarter, but it was really the Anthony Edwards show. As for the Memphis offense, Jaw was doing a really good job first half of just splitting the defense in the pick and roll and getting to that rim. He's so good at that. All of a sudden, just change a pace, change a direction, in and out dribble, or splitting the pick and roll and getting to the rim, and he was doing that well. Jaron Jackson Jr. and Dylan Brooks, though, started out missing shots. Uh, Missing just their routine shots they usually make, some threes. And one thing I really realized about the Wolves is, as I said, they can match the athleticism and get out and run. But something about the Grizzlies I realized, what's their plan B when they're not making threes? Because Jaron Jackson Jr., as I said many times this season, and I kind of alluded to it in the preview, He's kind of gone away from what he first started doing when he came in the league, which was jump hooks with either hand, kind of playing the post. Now he is more of a pick and pop big man. And sometimes when he is the same way I said about Carl Anthony Towns, where he notices the space in front of him and goes to the basket. Jaron Jackson Jr. has been doing a lot of that, just charging in like a bull, like a rhino full speed 
and going into the body of guys and finishing. But that's not always going to work. That can be out of control. And the Minnesota defense did a really good job, especially as the game progressed, of packing that paint when guys were on the drive. So not necessarily packing it, waiting for guys to drive, but when guys would drive, their help defense was really sharp. They made up a lot of ground. Guys like Vanderbilt, guys like McDaniels, who I thought was really good. Even Carl Anthony Towns, I thought he did a really good job guarding this game, moving his feet pretty well, and just making life tough for guys. So the first quarter was a big win for Minnesota, 41-33. The Grizzlies, though, in the second quarter made a run with Jaw on the bench. Now, again, we've seen them play many times this season and play very well, 18-2, I believe, with Jaw out of the lineup. That doesn't mean they're better without Jaw, but that means that they're used to playing without him. And guys like Tyus Jones, Brandon Clark, Kyle Anderson did a good job in this stretch of minutes. And narrowed the gap and made it so that the game was 65-62 to 62 Timberwolves at the half. But Memphis had made it a closer game. D'Angelo Russell, very quiet compared to the Clipper game. Very quiet in the first half. Not really looking to score as much. Like almost not even looking at the rim at times when he was handling the ball and pick and roll. But in the third quarter, he started getting the ball more. Made some solid decisions, some solid reads. And even though he didn't shoot much and get going like that, he played better in the third quarter. Third quarter, the Grizzlies offense found themselves, but they were still really struggling to get stops. And it just felt like Minnesota made all the little plays, the timely plays, the winning a 50-50 ball, getting an offensive rebound when the Grizzlies really needed a stop, making a big three that wasn't easy when the Grizzlies made scored a couple baskets in a row. And Anthony Edwards, again, was that guy contested threes, contested pull-ups, taking guys off the dribble and finishing around the rim, step-back jump shots. He was giving us the entire package, and you're seeing what... This is what you call being on the national stage finally and seeing a star emerge before our very eyes. That's Anthony Edwards right now. He's fearless. He's strong. His skills improve tremendously. He's scoring at all three levels right now, and if he continues to play like this... 30 points kind of like average because he's literally averaging like 30 in these first two playoff games when you combine the play-in and this game. This is, That's not the Minnesota Timberwolves of the season because Anthony Edwards averages 21 points. He's rocking with 30 right now in the postseason. 36 in game one and an efficient 36, 12 for 23, 4 of 11 from three. So if that's going to continue, the Memphis Grizzlies are in huge trouble huge. And as I said before, the Grizzlies, I guess this is more applicable to the fourth quarter, but I was figuring or thinking to myself, like, where are they going to go if Jaw's not hitting? And Jaw did not start the third quarter the way he started the first half. He started to miss. He turned the ball over once. I remember in the third quarter, he was a little out of control and he was forcing it a bit. And it's the same thing I said with Donovan. I start to notice with Jaw in this game, a little out of control, a little bit too much just attacking right when you cross half court, get the screen and go, move the ball a bit. you got to keep these guys in rhythm. Desmond Baines of the world. You know, the Grizzlies shot 7 for 27 from deep. Jaron Jackson Jr., 0 of 5 from 3. Desmond Bain actually shot 3 of 8 from 3, so that was pretty good. But Melton, Zaire Williams, these guys I don't think played much with Jaw, but they were 0 for 5 combined from, from deep. 
But John needs to work the ball around a little bit more because that can be a problem. I've, I noticed it the other night, and I think that's one of the reasons they lost. I also think that they attacked Jaw on defense. Jaw had some poor closeouts. There was one time where I think he was just rotating over to Carl Anthony Towns, but he reached for the steal, and Cat turned the corner, turned around, and or should I say spun, and yammed it right over, I think it was Jaron Jackson Jr., and that was a filthy play by Cat. But the Grizz offense, Dylan Brooks and Jaron Jackson Jr. did, and Desmond Bain, they all started coming alive in the third quarter. Basically, everybody but Jaw. I'm pretty sure Jaw only had one field goal in the entire second half. But Jaron Jackson Jr. started scoring on some nice cuts, on some rolls. Dylan Brooks started hitting some shots, got an and one, taking the body contact. Jaron Jackson Jr. also had this really nice move off the dribble where he went between the legs and went right to the rim from the three-point line. And that was like a guard looking like that. I don't know how consistent that's, that is and it's going to be able is, how consistent it's going to be for him to be able to take guys off the dribble from the top of the key like that. Also had some nice link-ups, good nice link-ups with Brandon Clark when he came into the game. But as I said, Jaws started getting cold. The only points he scored in the third quarter were free throws. And the Wolves, the Grizzlies just could not string together stops. You know, the rotations were just a little bit a little bit off, a step slow compared to the Wolves, a, more miscommunications. It just felt as though the Grizzlies made more mistakes than Minnesota did. And Minnesota punished a lot of these mistakes. You know, second chance points and big shots when, when, it, when the momentum, when the Grizzlies tried to make runs, Anthony Edwards prevented any of that. Carl Anthony Towns was drawing double teams. Even, even guys like Jaden McDaniels and Malik Beasley. Malik Beasley had a nice finish, continued to make shots from three in the corners. McDaniels, they were, I remember Carl Anthony Towns was actually fighting for post position. This was the third quarter. Actually fighting for post position. They gave the ball to McDaniels who flashed the foul line for that high-low action, and he shot the jumper and made it from the, from the foul line. So that's great offense for the Wolves. Grizz, though, in the fourth quarter, they did struggle to score in some of those non-jaw minutes. They did. And... The Minnesota Timberwolves continued to play well. Carl Anthony Towns continued to attack on those pick and roll and pick and pop opportunities. He was doing well in transition as well. And I thought that the Wolves did a great job in transition. There was even one time where they were in transition and there were four Grizzlies shirts. And Malik Beasley, I believe, still got an offensive rebound and scored. And he hit a big three in the corner to put the Wolves up 106-98. Grizz, what's their alternative? If they're if Jaw's not getting what he wants to the basket. What's their alternative besides just shooting threes and hoping they go in? Because I need to see more from Dylan Brooks in terms of getting good looks. Can he get good looks? Desmond Bain the same. I know he's only a second-year player and he's improved a lot, but he's going to have to do a little bit more. And I think really Jaron Jackson is going to need to post up because I've seen him do it. I saw him do it his rookie year, but if they want to just continue to shoot threes, they could be upset in the first round. And with how much that they've talked this year, I guarantee you, it will not be pretty, the slander that they will receive. They have to win this series. They have to. And they're off to a poor start. Patrick Beverly made a huge three, kind of sealed the game. Dylan Brooks, by the way, missed too many free throws. I think that's another reason why they lost. Seven of ten from the line. Eh, I'd, I'd ask for one more. You know, eight, go eight of ten. But he still shot pretty well, Dylan Brooks, overall. 24 points, seven for 14 from the field, and three of four from three. Jaron Jackson did not, though. 12 points, four rebounds, seven blocks. Even though he had a really good defensive game, a couple costly plays. D'Angelo Russell had not scored in a while, and in the fourth quarter, Jaron Jackson Jr. overhelped 
on Anthony Edwards. They gave it to D'Lo, who shot a straightaway three, a feet, a foot or two behind the line, I might add, and made it. And it was a big shot. And then he also had, an, uh, I think, a flyby and was burned on a Patrick Beverly three, yes. So the Wolves made all the big shots. They made the big plays. John Morant, his stat line lies. 32 points, 8 for 18 from the field, 16 for 20 from the line. He got to the line a lot, but I didn't like the way he played second half. I think he was a reason that they lost. He didn't play good defense. He needs to be a little better. Just standing up on defense is not enough. And again, it is not one of those situations where he needs to do everything offensively. Yes, he is the only true star on this team, but it's not like they lack creation. I don't think they do. I think you need to just trust your teammates a little bit and move the ball and be a true point guard, not just always attack. So... That's how I feel about that. The Wolves, though, you got to give credit to them. They made all the little plays at the right time, made big plays. The Pat Bev 3 sealed it, and Ja got blocked running into traffic late in the game. Goes back to what I was saying about the Minnesota Timberwolves and their sharp rotations in defense. Let's read the lines as the Minnesota Timberwolves steal game one in Memphis. 130 to 119. I'm sorry, 130 to 117. In Minnesota. I see there's a bot in the chat. and have to block that. Anyways, here are the lines. Anthony Edwards was the player of the game. He was spectacular again. 36 points on 12 for 23 shooting, 4 of 11 from deep. Carl Anthony Towns, 29 and 13 on 11 of 18 shooting. Pat Bev, 10 points, 6 rebounds, 6 assists, 4 of 8 from the field, and 2 of 5 from deep. D'Angelo Russell, 10 points, 2 of 11 from the field, and 1 of 3 from 3. This is his second series of his career. It wasn't a very good game for him, but they got the job done and he made a big three, so it's okay. Jaden McDaniels, what a performance by him. Played 25 minutes, scored 15 points, was plus 19, which was the highest of any player on either team, and just played great defense. His athleticism, his help defense, his length was very bothersome, and he shot five or six and two of three from three. And then Malik Beasley, another really solid game, shooting the ball well, coming off the bench and giving the Timberwolves 23 points on 8 of 14 shooting and 4 for 10 from 3. So, fantastic by the Wolves. And I think I'm pretty sure I read the lines of the Grizzlies, but I'm going to read it again just in case. 12 points for Jackson on 4 of 13 shooting. I already read Dylan Brooks. John Moran, 32 points, 8 for 18 and 16 for 20 from the, from the foul line. But a little out of control for me. Desmond Bain, 17 points, 6 for 15, that's 40%, and 3 of 8 from 3. Gonna need a little bit more efficient shooting from him, but mainly, and Brandon Clark, 13 points on 6 of 7, 13 points and 12 rebounds on 6 of 7 shooting. They're gonna need better defense. That was terrible. You can't just allow 41 points in the first quarter, because here's what I think. You, you can't win games in the first quarter, but you can surely lose them. And I'm not saying they lost it in the first quarter because they still were only down 3 at half, but you gave the Wolves confidence. And I'm going to tell you a team that did not did a much better job in the first quarter the other night. And that was the Philadelphia 76ers against the Toronto Raptors. They came out and played the right way. And it starts with the Stars. And what you're what we saw in this game was the difference in star power. I talked about it in the preview. By the way, I just released it. That was my favorite preview with Fahim, Nelly J, and Jonathan, one Sixers fan and two Raptors fans. But what we talked about was if the Raptors want to win this series, see, Occam's going to have to be the second best player in the series. And he wasn't that uh, on Saturday night. He wasn't. 
James Harden, despite not making shots, he was creating. He was doing the typical James Harden stuff. He was getting guys good looks. He was playmaking really well in the pick and roll. He had 14 assists and one turnover. So if James Harden is going to create like that, that's all he needs to do for Philly. Tyrese Maxey, what a performance by him. It may have been his first playoff start. I'd have to go back and check last year, but that was unbelievable. I know he shot 41% from three this season, but to come out and shoot that well, but above that, to attack the basket as relentlessly as he did throughout the game, getting his name chanted by the fans, he took over the game. I didn't realize how fast that kid was. And Asher did talk about it in the season preview uh, in Summer League, how good of a finisher he is. And he showed some really crafty finishes, you know, wrap around, left hand, finishing on the opposite side of the basket, and ones, getting bumped and just throwing it, going away from the basket. He showed a lot. A lot for me to think that maybe he's the third best player on this Sixers team, not Tobias Harris. Sixers fans, you can comment on that. But Tobias Harris also had a great game. It couldn't have been a more perfect opening game for Philadelphia. Tobias was not just getting open threes. He got into his mid-range and hit three mid-range shots in the second quarter. And, and also a floater. 26 points, 6 rebounds, 6 assists for Tobias on 9 of 14 shooting and 3 of 5 from deep. Embiid, you're going to look at the stat line and look at his field goals and say, oh, Embiid didn't play well. He shot 33% on 5 for 15. Casual alert, casual alert. you got to see the game. Do you understand how many times this guy got double teamed? He was getting double teamed. He was getting loaded up on. He made all the right decisions. He didn't turn the ball over one time. And I thought he did a much better job of catching the ball deep. There was even one play when he got an and one where he caught the ball in the restricted area. Got it, turned, went up, and won. It is that simple, ladies and gentlemen. It's that simple. When you have that size and that skill, don't make it so you have to do all your work on the ball. Do your work off the ball so when you get the ball, it's that easy. And that is typical. You watch all the great big men. We're going to watch it in Time Machine. You'll see it. Embiid did exactly that. He was drawing double teams. And we're going to talk about this in other series in regards to some other players. But when you get doubled at the top, it is not as effective. When you get doubled low, you got to come from the top, which creates open threes and longer rotations. Anyways, Embiid was awesome, I thought. Made all the right plays. For the Raptors, Van Vliet and Precious Achua, I'm sorry, no, Van Vliet and Chris Boucher struggled with foul trouble a lot. Boucher, not necessarily as important. By the, by the way, Embiid had some really nice Euro steps and drives in transition. Or on pick and pop, same thing, just getting downhill and showing his guard skills. But Fred Van Vliet getting two fouls was not pretty. I thought the one bright spot for the Raptors was Scotty Barnes. And it's very unfortunate that he got injured. That was a brutal injury where Embiid stepped on his ankle like that. It was not intentional, in my opinion, at all. I don't know who's even trying to say that stuff. But I think Scotty Barnes showed some point-forward chops, finding cutters and just handling the ball, getting to the rim. I thought he was awesome. But the Sixers were just too much. I also, I also thought the Philadelphia 76ers were killing on the glass. And the glass is where playoff games can be won or lost, where seasons can be decided. The 1980 Philadelphia 76ers, if you watch Game 6, they lost that game on the glass. The 2010 Celtics in Game 7, they lost that game on the glass. Kobe Bryant out-rebounding Garnett. 
It's totally different than playoff, than regular season basketball. You've got to win the glass battle. And the Philadelphia 76ers crashed the offensive glass. They got 10 offensive rebounds to the Raptors, 7. And they out-rebounded only by 3. They out-rebounded the Sixers, but it's the, t- the kind of rebounds you get. And Danny Green, I remember, had to put back. And Bede was on the offensive glass. He got four offensive rebounds. So, as a collective, the Philadelphia 76ers had 10 offensive rebounds, and they were all by their starters. So, that tells you how hard they were working. I just think they threw the first punches, and I don't know if Philadelphia, uh, Toronto was necessarily prepared for that. They seemed like they, yeah, just were a step behind in terms of game plan, which I didn't expect from Nick Nurse. However, maybe it's just the, the, the talent disparity. So, and the fact that the Philadelphia 76ers didn't, uh, turned the ball over more than one time in the first half was another big reason why they had a nice lead going into the half. They were also hitting their threes as well. As I mentioned, Maxi, even Niang hit a three, Tobias. So 34-24 in favor of the Sixers in the second quarter. They led 69-51 to at the half. And then the third quarter was the Maxi show. He just went absolutely ballistic. Also, Embiid and Harden, it's really hard to guard these guys without fouling. Harden was kind of starting up his old bullshit again. We'll see how that works going down the line. But Maxi was just awesome. He was attacking space off the catch and even running his own pick and rolls. When he hit this one deep three from like several feet behind the line, that's when you knew it was just that kind of night for him. He was ridiculous. James Harden had a really nice bounce pass on a on a transition opportunity fast break from behind the half court. Just a beautiful bounce pass right in stride to Tyrese and he was finishing everything. Fred Van Vliet started heating up but it just wasn't enough. I also want to say the Raptors still generated a lot of decent looks but they were not hitting. I thought that the way Siakam was seeing multiple bodies. You got to give credit to the Sixers for the way they defended him. We talked about who's going to defend him. Obviously they had Matisse Tybal in this game but it was a collective effort. I thought Joel Embiid and Harden both played decent defense. More impressed with Obviously, Embiid is a better defender, but I was, you know, when Harden locks in, he can be decent. Embiid, you know, against Siakam, he even got switched on to Pascal a couple times, and he got blown by, but he did a good job of recovering and taking away, he intimidated Siakam to not go up with a shot on on his recovery. So, credit to Embiid, he was showing some great defensive chops, even had one really nice block, and, you know, that he owns that crowd. He truly does. Siakam, he's going to need to be more aggressive than what he was. That wasn't enough. That was not the Pascal Siakam I've been hearing Raptors fans raving about all season long. Nine for 18. And a lot of those points were in the fourth quarter when the game was already 20 points you know, finished. So don't let the stat line fool you. He didn't play badly, but he needs to do more. He needs to be more aggressive because you throughout the course of the game, you can't just be doing that. He has to play at a very high level if the Raptors want any chance of winning the series. And now that Scotty Barnes is out, it's going to make it that much harder for them to do so. So, yeah. Anyways, let's move on. So Sixers won nothing. We'll see how Toronto responds. It's just going to be really, really, really hard without Scotty Barnes. You hate to see that. But let's read the lines. Tyrese Maxey is the player of the game for me, without a shadow of a doubt. 38 points for the youngster. Four rebounds, two assists, zero turnovers, 66% shooting, 14 for 21, and five for eight from three. James Harden, 22 points, five rebounds, 14 assists, and only one turnover, six for 17 from the field, four of seven from three. But again, 
Don't look at the field goal percentage. Harden had a good game. 22 and 14 speaks for itself. Embiid, similar situation, wasn't efficient, 5 for 15, but 19 points, 15 rebounds, and 4 assists. I didn't see Nick Nurse go to any blatant zone. So it was all mostly just loading up, fronting him in the post and stuff like that. And they were making all the right plays. Embiid was was posting up deeper and has shown that hopefully he can continue this to future rounds doing that. Because in the fourth quarters, that's what you have to do. Not settle for 18-footers when the defense loads up on you. And then Tobias, 26 points, 6 rebounds, 6 assists. So good day at the office for the Sixers to start out. Scotty Barnes, I hope you get well soon, brother, because that was very unfortunate. Now we're going to go to the last game of Saturday night, the Denver Nuggets and the Golden State Warriors. Steph Curry. Steph Curry started this game on the bench because he just came back from the foot injury. This was his first game back. And obviously we talked about this at length in the preview. How are the Warriors going to guard Nikola Jokic? Well, they didn't double him that much. They threw a lot of stuff at him. Actually, that's wrong. They did double him a good amount. They doubled, They threw everything at him. Load up, double, front, multiple bodies. We saw Looney guard him. We saw Draymond guard him. We saw Bielitsa guard him. We saw Otto Porter guard him. And for the most part, I thought Jokic played pretty damn well. I thought the, the Warriors made him work, just like Nat and I said, but I thought he played pretty damn well. I thought the Nuggets also got off to a really solid start, led by Will Barton and Monte Morris. They forced two turnovers on Klay Thompson because, remember, stepped in start, so it was Jordan Poole, Klay, Wiggins, Draymond, and Looney. They forced two turnovers on Klay Thompson. Monte Morris hit a mid-range in transition, got to, threw it up for Will Barton for a lob. I thought Will Barton was really solid. You know, he's the only other real reliable or somewhat reliable scorer to me that this team has without Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray. And he got to the basket a couple of times, hit some jumpers, even created plays for guys on driving kicks. Monte and Barton found Joker for some nice pick and rolls early on in the game. And Joker got going at eight points in the first quarter and was not able to be, was not being contained. He was getting what he wanted, jump hooks, easy, deep post position, showing people how it's done. You already know the Warriors. They have never played a center like this in this, war, in this dynasty era. So I really want to see Jokic just feast. The problem is... It's just a lot. The Warriors are a strong defensive team. As I said with the Mavs, the Warriors know their coverages. They know who to switch, and they switch a lot. The only matchup they're not going to switch is the Jokic matchup. They're going to go drop coverage on that with Looney guarding two at one. And they did a pretty decent job, especially because Andrew Wiggins, Klay Thompson, can get over those screens, and that length bothers the ball handler. So it's not like they're just like when you play against the Lakers when you're coming off screens and those guards just died, and you're two-on-one, basically. you got a guy chasing you and the guy in front of you playing um, the roller and you. So, Jeff Green also started out with two open threes from some Jokic, Jokic passes. Aaron Gordon got a wide open dunk. The Nuggets started out pretty well. But, Klay Thompson slowly started heating up. Hit three threes in the first quarter. One off the catch from Draymond, another off a Steph Curry assist when he came into the game, just moving without the ball. And Steph Steph Curry immediately came in, and even though he could not really blow by guys the same way when he's fully healthy, was short on his first couple of jumpers. He was 0-5 to start the game. 
his mere presence on the court just changes everything. And mind you, he was still competing on defense. Got a couple of strips, great defensive plays, but his presence on the floor just changes things. Coming off screens, you need to throw two at him. He was coming off screens, and when he caught the ball, you saw two guys run at him. There was one of his first plays. Coming off a screen, they throw two at him. Draymond Green slips. All shooters on the weak side, so that's a long rotation to make. Draymond had a wide-open dunk, and I thought Draymond was really good doing his Draymond thing, disrupting plays, forcing turnovers, doing as well a job on Jokic as he can do at his size. I thought he was great. I also liked the way that the Warriors attacked Jokic constantly on defense. They put him in pick and roll a lot. And again, the Nuggets, when they have Jeff Green and Aaron Gordon out there, they're going to switch that kind of action. But with Jokic, they got to go with that classic hedge recover. And they're good at it that they did against the Clippers in 2020. And they've become their staple with Jokic. Because Jokic is actually not a terrible defender at, you know, stepping up and kind of just using his body well, making himself big and forcing you to pass the ball. But if you pass the ball fast enough in today's NBA with how much it's spaced out, that can get you a good shot automatically because that's why teams try to switch everything to take away those kind of advantages. And with Jokic on the floor, they don't have that advantage. I also thought Jokic got burned a couple times guarding on the perimeter by Nemanja Bjelica. Took him right to the rim one time. There was another time I think it was Klay Thompson that took him to the rim. And by the way, Andrew Wiggins also played his role perfectly. Hit a floater. Uh, I'm pretty sure he hit a mid-range. He was good. Otto Porter also came off the bench alongside Bielitsa, and we didn't see Kaminga in that game. So we saw a nine-man rotation, I believe, for the Warriors in real time. Bielitsa, Iguodala, Otto Porter Jr., and Steph, and Gary Payton. So they even went with a, a lineup of Steph and four bench players. Technically five bench players on the night, but it worked out okay. Nemanja Bielitsa impressed me. His defense was pretty good. He was pretty physical with Jokic, and... He made some nice. He had some nice passes, and of course, as I said, he took Jokic to the rim this one time and posted up Austin Rivers and barbecue chickened him. I also have to say though about Austin Rivers, he played so hard. You know, he was working super hard on defense. So shout out to Austin. You know he's going to compete. His stat line doesn't really show what he did. He only had five points and was two of five. But in his twenty six minutes, he played so hard. Nemanja Bjelica, eight points in fifteen minutes, three of six. I thought he actually played pretty well, but. Klay Thompson, as the game went on, you could see him start to get more comfortable. And somebody who was extremely comfortable and started heating up and made the... Because there was actually a stretch where DeMarcus Cousins came in for Denver and it actually relieved Jokic pretty well. He had a nice up and under, but he missed a layup. He hit a three. He was forcing loose ball fouls, attacking the offensive glass. And Jokic came back into the game with the Nuggets only down one point. So they didn't actually lose the non-Jokic minutes that badly in that second quarter stretch. They were actually up 43-40 because the Dubs had a long scoring drought. But then, because Curry's jumpers were short. By the way, Aaron Gordon, his jump shot is so broke. Like, his offense is just disgusting to me. But someone whose offense is disgusting in the good way was Jordan Poole, who was hosting some pool parties in the Bay Area on Saturday night. Deep threes, coming off screens for mid-ranges, fallaways. One layup he had was like ridiculous. Just threw it over his head and banked it in. And when he made that shot, you knew that the momentum was starting to shift. Jokic, as I said, got blown by a couple times. And then Curry finally cut off the ball and got a layup. He was found, um, I think it was by Draymond. And then Clay hit his fourth three before halftime. And finally, 
Curry hit a three before halftime as well, if I'm not mistaken, which led the Warriors to be up 11 points at half, and they didn't really look back after that. You could just see the difference in the weaponry that the Warriors had personnel-wise. Yes, Stephen Curry did make a three at the end of the half with four seconds left. Draymond Green assisted. So that put the Warriors up 11, and they started just kind of running away with it. The talent disparity is just too much to me for Jokic to overcome. Klay Thompson, though, just to see him play better like that, and even in the third quarter, he hit a nice turnaround, hit another three. But as I said with Tanat in the preview, the Warriors have more offensive weapons to me than maybe that they've had even in the KD years. Jordan Poole is just the real deal, man. And he was, he was the real deal in this game. And I just don't think they could bounce back. Jokic, he was trying. He was getting mauled, trying his best. But to no avail, he's just going to need more help than this. And he's going to need to honestly drop 30 at this point. 12 of 25 for him is is pretty good. But it's kind of how, how Nat said. You know, you're going to have to make him work. And he shot 48%. And that's under his, league, uh, under his season average. So Warriors fans will take that all day long. Monte Morris had 10 points, 4 of 9 from the field, only 1 of 5 from deep. And that's another thing. The Nuggets didn't shoot that well from 3. 11 for 35, 31%. Will Barton, 24 points, 6 rebounds, 5 assists, 10 of 18 shooting. I thought he played pretty well. But it was it was a Jordan Poole show. He just went nuts. And Draymond Green, as I said, solid all night long. 12 points, 6 rebounds, 9 assists for him to go along with 3 blocks. 5 of 7 from the field, too. Andrew Wiggins. Typical, great defensive performance. Did his thing. Was efficient. Didn't do too much. 16 points. 9 rebounds. 6 of 11 from the field. Kavon Looney. Only played 13 minutes, but I think he held it down in his time. 6.7 rebounds. Klay Thompson. 19 points on 7 of 15 shooting and 5 for 10 from 3. That's exactly what you want to see. Klay Thompson. Really solid start. Curry. 5 for 13 in the end, so he started getting his groove. And started making some threes in the second half. 16 points for him. He was plus 17. Four assists to go along with it. Three of six from deep. So he still shot 50% from three. And then I thought the player of the game, Jordan Poole. 30 points. Nine for 13 from the field. And five of seven from deep. So great start to the Warriors. They look formidable. And they're going to slowly start to find their chemistry in the playoffs. As they haven't really been able to find it during the season, but thankfully for them, Draymond, Clay, and Steph have played with each other for years, so it won't be as hard as anticipated. My question is, who slides down to the starting lineup when Curry gets put back in the starting lineup, and will it happen next game? Nuggets, I, I really don't know what, what to say and what they have to do. Jokic needs to play perfectly, and they need to do a better job guarding, but they're not going to have pressure on them to win any games till they go back to the, alt to the altitude. Now, let's move on to Sunday's games. I'm sorry, this is going to be long, but it's just thorough. This game I'm not going to spend too much time on. It was an absolute beatdown. By the way, these play-in games are also leading to one thing, and that is that some of these teams are not as nearly as well-rested as others. The Hawks played a grinded-out game in Cleveland and now have to play a well-rested Miami Heat team who was rolling on all cylinders. No Capella. I still don't know why. I haven't checked. But obviously, that's a huge loss. John Collins did come back, though, and came off the bench for the Hawks. But the big issue for me with the Hawks was the Heat switched everything, and they just didn't know what to do. 
Trey Young, when Trey Young doesn't play well, this team is cooked, and he played terribly. He couldn't get anything. He was not generating any good looks, really. There, there were times where he tried to drive, and they loaded up, and he still created some decent open threes for his teammates, but they just were not hitting. Gallinari was, like, legitimately the only player I remember making shots. Like, he was in mid-ranges in the second quarter, and the Hawks were only down by six points after one, but they only scored 17 points. Uh, in the first quarter. And you could tell the Miami Heat were out for blood on defense. They took Trey Young out of the game. They frustrated him. He saw a bunch of different bodies. And the Hawks can't guard. That's the issue. The Hawks can't guard. You know Miami is going to swing the ball. And they're going to they're gonna move the ball. Yeah, they're going to swing the ball. They're going to move without it. They're going to have creative sets. But the Miami Heat's offense is really the question mark more so for me than their defense. Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, Kyle Lowry. Who's going to be that guy? that makes big shots when it counts against the best opposition later down the line, will they be able to get those buckets when need be? Tyler Hero, the sixth man of the year to be, also looked a lot better. Two guys that just looked so... Honestly, everybody played like trash to me for the Heat last year against the Bucks. but Bam Adebayo, his stat line does not reflect his performance at all. Six points, six rebounds, and five assists. One of five from the field. Even though his one jump shot was an 18-footer contested, it was nice. But his ability to switch everything... Not a lot of centers can do that. Even the DeAndre Aytons of the world are not switching everything like Bam. Bam was switching on to Trey Young and holding his own. And P.J. Tucker, what an addition that was for the team. Six of eight from the field, four of four from deep, 16 points to go along with five rebounds. And Jimmy Butler was uber aggressive. He was getting by Gallinari. He liked that matchup. He was getting by Gallinari. He saw Kevin Hurd. He was getting by him. He was attacking the basket with force. He had a really good game. 21 points, 6 boards, 4 assists, 3 steals on plus 27, plus minus. 9 of 15 from the field, 60% for Jimmy. He shot 2 threes and made one of them. He needs to shoot better from the foul line, though. 2 of 7, that's not going to cut it against better teams. And when Trey Young has better games than that. But he was awesome. Kyle Lowry, already showing why the Heat brought him in. Smart decision-making, ability to make shots off the ball, on the ball, taking charges, doing everything. 4 of 8 from the field, 2 of 4 from 3, 10 points, 9 assists for Kyle to go along with 2 steals and 0 turnovers. And then Max Struess started at the 2 guard instead of Duncan Robinson, which was interesting. I thought Struess was pretty good. He defends well. He's strong. He had 9 points on 3 of 8 shooting. But that guy I just mentioned, Duncan Robinson, really was a huge difference maker for the Heat. He was make, It was like the bubble again. He was making every 3 he took on the move, you know, coming tightly off of screens, going right, going left. 9 for 10 from the field, and 8 of 9 from 3. That is absolutely bonkers. The Heat, as a team, shot 18 of 38 from 3, 47.4%. The Hawks, 10 of 36 from 3, and that is your game right there. And it's partially because that defense. The Hawks can't guard, and the Heat can guard. And they missed Capella big time as well, because that hurts their defense. But... Not great from the Hawks at all. Bogdanovich had a terrible game. They're going to need a lot better from him. 0 of 8 from the field, 0 for 4 from 3, and a lot of shots I've seen him make his entire career. Trey Young, though, had a stinker. And I, as I always say, you got to look at the top. The only person to me that had a decent game, DeAndre Hunter and D Danilo Gallinari. Kevin Harder was not terrible. He had 8 points. Gallinari had 17 points on 5 of 12. But Trey Young, 1 for 12. 0 of 7 from deep and 8 points. This could be a sweep, but I think the Hawks will win a game at Adla in Atlanta because Trey Young is that good. Tyler Hero had 6 points on 3 of 11 shooting, but I thought he had a good impact on the game. The Heat, 
blew the hell out of them out. So very impressive performance by the Heat, a team I had not talked about much this. I did not talk about much this season, and now we're gonna get to lock in on them. So it'll be fun. And now finally, the game and series that I'm most excited about. The game and series that delivered the most drama on the first weekend. What a classic. An instant classic that we're going to be talking about for years to come in game one between the Brooklyn Nets and the Boston Celtics. Immediately, you could see the Boston Celtics defense swarming, switching every single matchup except when they when they had Kyrie calling for screens with Al Horford, they went drop coverage. And Al Horford does such a such a phenomenal job of playing two at once, showing on ball handler while staying attached to the roller. He does such a great job. And sometimes the Celtics were going with that late switch. And when Al Horford was switched on late to Kyrie, when you pull it back out, they would load up and double. They knew exactly what they were doing. But they were making the, the only reason why the Nets, even though Kevin Durant and Kyrie got off to some some tough starts shooting the ball, Kevin Durant especially turned the ball over four times in the first quarter he was seeing multiple bodies wherever he turned the second he would get a step on somebody he would see another defender when he was going into the paint he was getting stripped and this is one thing my friend Shane that we had on the midseason preview uh midseason checkpoint of the season always talks about with Durant he's so tall and you this happens with Paul George too he's so tall that despite how tight his handle is it's just literally physically easier to steal sometimes because he's so tall the ball has to travel a large distance to go up to his fingers and it's easy to get a hand on it sometimes and he was getting stripped and ripped a couple of times in traffic in the first quarter and the only reason why the nets were still in the game is because they were doing a good job guarding themselves the Celtics were a little bit cold and a lot of adrenaline as i said and because seth curry made a couple of jump shots to start the game but the celtics defense was sharp and you love it when you see your best players defending Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. I mean, you know what you're going to get from Smart. You know what you're going to get from Horford. But Jason Tatum defending Kevin Durant so much. Jalen Brown defending Kevin Durant so much. Guarding Kyrie Irving so much. These are the challenges that when Jason Tatum takes, he's a top 10 player in the league. No ands, ifs, or buts. And I'll even take it a step further. He was the best player on the court in game one throughout the four quarters. Not just the fourth quarter because I know people are going to say Kyrie Irving and we'll get into his master class of a second half in a bit. But Jason Tatum, it was a smothering Celtic defense to start. Um, but it was only a one-point game after one. 29 to 28. But Kyrie Irving in the second quarter started to get going. Tice was dropping a little bit too deep in that drop coverage. And Kyrie was coming off for some threes, some mid-ranges, getting to the basket. He, he, he made up for Kevin Durant's poor first half. Kevin Durant was one of seven to start the game. But the craziest part was we were looking at it and we saw how frustrated the Nets were in terms of offense. Yet they were only, they were still up a point because the Celtics offense hadn't really figured out a way to score too much. And you got to give the Nets defense credit. Durant defended well. Kyrie defended well. But I also think that the Celtics were generating some open looks for the role players like Grant Williams, like Tice, and they weren't hitting. But part of that is because those are the shots that the Heat, that the Nets are willing to give up. They're going to load up on, on Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. But when Jason Tatum came back into the game after a large scoring drought, he started taking it to him, taking him all the way to the, taking guys all the way to the rim whether it was Kyrie Irving, Bruce Brown, he was he was just a beast. And he wasn't settling too much either. That's what I loved about Tatum. He only shot seven threes, and he made three of them yesterday. thought it was awesome. 
He was also getting double teamed and loaded up on a lot and making all the right reads. He had seven assists in the first half. So credit to Jason Tatum just maturing, seeing things before they happen. Bruce Brown, there was a point where the Nets went with a lineup of Kyrie, Seth Curry, Bruce Brown, and Goran Dragic, and then Nick Claxton as the five, by the way, who played amazing. I've been high on Claxton all year. You guys know this. He was finishing around the rim. He was getting offensive rebounds and putting them back up and in. His rim protection was good. I just thought that he was doing making the right plays. Three blocks for Claxton, two offensive rebounds, 13 points, eight rebounds, and six of eight shooting, but one of five from the foul line, and that came back to bite them big time because even one of those free throws changes the outcome of the game. So that's something he needs to look in the mirror uh, about. Andre Drummond was the one that started, but Claxton ended up getting 14 more minutes than him. Drummond 17, Claxton 31. A guy I also was really impressed by in the first half that was one of the the reasons why the Nets were able to make up for Durant's cold start was Goran Dragic. He turned back the clock, hit some mid-ranges off the catch, got to the rim a couple times, 14 points off the bench for him, 6 of 11 from the field, and a plus 17. So that was impressive. The Celtics only went eight deep, by the way. Grant Williams, Peyton Pritchard, and Derek White were the only guys that came off the bench for them. So it was a very heavy minute from the starters. Smart, Smart, 36, Jalen, 40, Tatum, 45, and Horford, 41. Think of how many minutes Al Horford's playing at that age. But anyways, it was just neck-to-neck the whole first half. Kyrie Irving ended the half well, which made it a tie game going into the half. And the second half was just electrifying, but the Celtics threw the first punch in the third quarter. Jalen Brown, who was really quiet and just not playing well in the first half, not shooting well, not being aggressive, getting lost on defense a lot, which was, you know, I don't want to say uncharacteristic because we've seen that before in the past and we've talked about it, but he wasn't great. I also want to give Jalen Brown a lot of credit, though, with being so sacrificial in terms of deferring to Tatum, kind of being like, okay, man, it's your team. Even though Jalen can score 25 on any given night himself, and last season looked about as good as him as Tatum before he got injured. But I like how he's kind of given up the reins a little bit. And that takes a lot of self-reflection and unselfishness because a lot of people won't do that. And I think people should not take that aspect for granted at all, especially when people were talking about, oh, are we going to break, they should get broken up. They can't play together. I think part of the reason that it's worked out so much better is because Jalen Brown is okay with not having very big scoring nights if it means the team wins. And that's all that you should care about. But because in today's NBA and today's media, we talk about, oh, this guy's getting carried, oh, this and that. Sometimes it just makes the player want to say, shit, why can't I Why can't I get off? But anyway, Jalen Brown was starting to get going. Jason Tatum continued to do his thing. Marcus Smart was phenomenal, though, on both ends, whether it was guarding the ball, his rotations at the rim, his communication. The Celtics' defense is just very impressive because they basically switch everything except if it's Kyrie Irving trying to put Al Horford in pick and roll. Then they go drop coverage. But, and also the Nets, and this is a, a Steve Nash mistake. They went too small. The Celtics are starting with Tyson Horford, and they're going to go with Bruce Brown, Kyrie Irving, and Seth Curry all in the same lineup, and then Kevin Durant and Claxton to figure out all the rebounds. They were getting killed on the glass by Tyson and especially Horford, and the Celtics were making him pay. Al Horford was just phenomenal, man. Phenomenal. KD got a little bit better in the third quarter, but he was still struggling immensely. Kyrie Irving, also, he was getting going, and 
At the end of the third quarter, Jalen Brown had an amazing chase down block, shifted momentum, he scored on the other end, and then Jason Tatum hit a three before the end of the quarter that made it an 11-point game. Kevin Durant, another turnover late in that quarter as well. Celtics had an 11-point lead going into what would be an incredible fourth quarter that the Nets won 29-19. They clamped down on defense, switched a lot themselves, and Claxton did a great job. Durant did a good job. Kyrie Irving was the weakest link in the defense. For sure. And he got blown by once or twice at the end of the game. So credit to the Celtics for hunting that out. They should definitely go at him more in my opinion. But talk about going at him. Kyrie put on a clinic. A clinic in the fourth quarter. It was insane. Hitting shots of every kind. Mid-range. Counters to your counters. Step backs. Just size you up threes in traffic against every type of defender, blowing by Jason Tatum like it was nothing. Like his first step, it was just ridiculous. He was clearing him, easy, insane, just mastery. And this is a guy who, you can look at it two ways. You can say, oh, he had a lot of rest because he was part-time. You also say he hasn't even been playing with this team all year, but he's playing like he hasn't missed a beat. It's insane. He was almost willing them to victory because KD was just like, I can't, there's really nowhere to be found if I'm being real. Like, 9 for 24 from the field for KD. This was not... And the fact that the Nets were so close to winning is an encouraging sign, Nets fans, that if Kevin Durant and Kyrie can both score 30 points on, on the same night, they may win. But then you also... They probably will win. But then you also have to consider, are you going to defend that well all the time? Is Jalen Brown going to have that poor of a game? Is Goran Dragic going to give you 16 points off the bench every night? So, these are all things to consider. But KD, yeah, I think it was two of five in the fourth quarter. But it was the Kyrie Irving show. It was just, it was just ridiculous. It was just ridiculous. And for a second, I thought that he was going to take them home. But the last couple of possessions, man, it was big time. Jalen Brown had seven points in the fourth quarter. He was starting to heat up, made a three, got to the rim a couple times. But the crazy sequence at the end of the game. By the way, Kyrie Irving and the animosity with the Celtics fans was great. I love how much they hate him. They, they have every right to hate him. And I like how he's clapping back. It's great because it's really... We need rivalries back. We missed rivalries. And I wish the players would engage a little bit more with it. But at least the fan player stuff is cool. We missed it and it makes every game that much more intense. And it makes Celtics fans want to win that much more. But late in the game, Jason Tatum kind of veered away. And I think it was because he was just kind of letting Jalen Brown do his thing and Marcus Smart was on the ball a little bit more and had a really good second half. But this is Tatum's team. Derek White was also on the ball a little much for my liking in the fourth quarter. I also thought Derek White played well, though. He had some really good defensive plays. He even got a stop on Kyrie on a good contest late. And they kept Derek White in because they wanted to switch everything. So that was Ime Udoka's line of thinking there with Horford, White, Smart, Brown, Tatum. And it ended up paying off, but just barely. Kyrie Irving hits a go-ahead three to put the Celtics up. I'm sorry, put the Nets up three with like 40 seconds left. I thought it was over. That was insane. Jalen Brown comes back the other way, pushes off a bit and gets away with it, scores. And then a very the, the only bad possession I can say about Kyrie Irving in the half, he tried super hard to get a shot. He was double teamed hard at the top. He tried to weave, and I thought he should have probably rose up over Horford, right elbow, when he was drifting right. But I think he probably thought he was going to get blocked. He stopped his dribble and had nowhere to go. He threw it to Durant with four seconds on the clock, and Tatum was hand-checking him, and they didn't call it. So it forced a really tough shot for KD. 
that really had very small chance of going in missed. And this is the genius, one of the plays that if the Celtics win this series will be remembered in Celtic history, maybe. I mean, the Celtics have such a great history that you kind of only remember the years they win a chip. But Ime Udoka had a timeout left, does not call it. And a genius decision that was. They pushed the ball up the floor. Jalen Brown does a really good job attacking, drawing multiple defenders, finds Marcus Smart for an open three, a three in which, and I agree with Draymond Green who tweeted about this, a three in which he would have taken every single time in the past. Nick Claxton unnecessarily ran at Marcus Smart because I believe Bruce Brown was also running at him. They both ran at him. He pump faked. Jason Tatum saw that Kevin Durant was completely ball watching and went right to the rim. He was found. Jason Tatum spun and laid it in as the clock expired. What a finish to an incredible game. What a pass by Smart. What a pass by Jalen. What a no-call by Ime. And what an amazing finish by the best player on the floor in game one, Jason Tatum. And if he continues to outplay KD, the Celtics are for sure winning this series. This is, we're noticing, we're seeing superstar ascendance before our eyes. The way he's always carried himself has been that of a star, but he is separating himself from the Trey Young, the Mitchells, the guys that don't guard. He's guarding. They have a number one defense in large part thanks to him. And let's talk about the reason why the Nets lost the game mainly. You can point to the size disparity with Nash. This one's all on Kevin to me. All on Kevin. Nine, it's time that we... Like, here's the thing about Durant, guys, right? I think he gets a lot of passes, personally. And since I made my show, the first year we... I mean, the bubble, there was no Kevin. Last year, we talked about him a lot, and I thought he was I thought he was the best player in the NBA in the playoffs. I thought he was amazing. And I still consider him in that conversation, but I'm starting to veer away from that. And I'll tell you why. Kevin Durant has two issues. And they're not big issues, because everybody has their flaws, right? But everybody kind of acts because they're not... And no offense to you guys, but I think a lot of people are not smart enough to see the flaws. Because I think part of what's helped me is going back and watching the game in other eras as well. And you see the differences between these all-time great scorers. And the reason why I always take Jordan and Kobe over him is because I think Kevin Durant makes his life too difficult for himself sometimes. Because he is so... He can't get blocked, right? He can get... He can rise up over you anytime he wants. But the problem is jumpers are layups for great players like that, until you realize they're still jumpers and he's still a human being that's shooting them. He doesn't generate enough easy baskets for me. And I think part of it's because he doesn't like physicality. You were seeing it in the game. They were being physical with him and he did not want any part of it. And the one time he tried to, he like extended his arm and got an offensive foul. Tatum blocked him. He blocked him late in the game. He didn't fall for his pump fakes and blocked him. He, I don't, I don't want to say he has a bad first step because Kevin Durant can get by guys, but... He doesn't get his shoulder in the guys and, and get to the rim like that. Doesn't, like, he's not a bully. And, and if you want to combat that, if you're not a bully, get in the post. My issue with Kevin is he doesn't do enough work off the ball. And I think that may be part of the reason he left Golden State. Maybe. But he wants to start it at the top. And I first noticed this in 2016 when he blew the 3-1 lead. If he wants to start behind the three-point line, it's the same criticism I have of LeBron. I'm going to keep it consistent. The defense can load up easier and force the ball out of your hands. They're cutting your driving lanes off when you do that. 
right? And that's what the Celtics were doing. If he constantly wants to do that, fine. You're either going to have to settle for rising over a guy for a deep, for a very tightly contested three, or drive and kick. And those rotations, mind you, are easier, in my opinion, as well, when you're loading up and zoning up in the top. Because when the pass is made, you have a little bit of time to go right to left. It's not the same as when you're sinking in deep when a guy's double teamed in the post, like we're going to get to another guy who was doing that beautifully in the next game. When you're sinking in deep, you have more distance to cover. You have more ground to cover. And Kevin Durant's making life easier for the defense doing what he does. He needs to post up because, he's again, you want to say, oh, he's a seven-footer with a handle and a jumper. Then what's the point of being seven feet? He might as well be 6'8". The only difference is he can get it off easier. That's the only difference. He can get it off easier. He gets cleaner looks. That's still a contested three, brother. Like, Kevin Durant has postgame. He has turnarounds over both shoulders. He does. But he needs to be willing to go to it. He needs to fight for position. He needs to work off the ball. If someone's pushing you, you push back. You turn. These are moves. These are these are fundamentals when guys are fighting. When, when guys just fight you in the post and don't let you get your spot, you don't just walk away and say, oh, okay, I'm just going to get the ball now. No. No. Put pressure on the officials. Keep fighting. This is what separates great scorers from good scorers. And Kevin Rant's a great scorer. He's an all-timer. But we need to start calling him out for his deficiencies. There's a reason he hasn't won a championship as the number one option consensus. He went to Golden State so he can go single coverage so nobody can point this out. But I'm going to point it out right here. Because I, no, I have no bias. I have no agenda against Kevin. I'm, I'm calling it how I see it. What I don't like, though, is when people say he's a better scorer than Kobe and Jordan because he's three-level demigod, 50-40-90, seven-foot, uh, god. Dude, nine for 24, one-nothing Celtics, baby. Let's read the lines. 23 points, nine for 24 for Kevin. Got outplayed by his own teammate, by the way. That's a 6'3 guy who literally just seems to get whatever shot he wants and makes whatever shot he wants. One of five from deep. And by the way, Kevin's going to respond to this. I, he's a great player. He will. 39 points for for uh, Kyrie Irving, 12 for 20 from the field, 60%, and he shot 60% from three as well, six of 10, nine of nine from the line, just a master class, 13 points and eight rebounds for Claxton on six of eight shooting, as I said, Drogic, 14 points on six of 11 shooting, Curry had nine points in the game after like seven in the first quarter, he just like went silent the rest of the way, and I think it's like he didn't really have that many good looks, he shot three of seven, one of four from three though, so you could have a little bit better, but... Nets didn't shoot a lot of threes. 11 of 24 was a good percentage, and that's mostly because Kyrie Irving made, like, averaged it out for everyone else, if we're being real. Kyrie was amazing. No, no fault of his that they lost to me. Celtics lines. Marcus Smart, what a performance. Defensive player of the year for me, probably. 20 points, 7 rebounds, 6 assists, 2 steals, 8 of 17 from the field, 4 of 9 from 3. So that's the even most more important part. He was having a good game from 3, and he still passed that shot up. So props to Marcus Smart. And then Jalen Brown didn't have his best game, but he still finished with a solid stat line. 23 points, 5 rebounds, 3 assists, 4 steals, and 2 blocks. I think he had 9 points in the 4th. It was either 7 or 9. 9 of 19 from the field, 1 of 4 from 3. And then my player of the game. Actually, let's get Al Horford his flowers too. Al Horford, 20 points and 15 rebounds. He was phenomenal. And it's just so great having his experience there back with Boston, especially because he's played with these guys before. 8 for 13 for Al, 2 of 2 from 3, and then Jason Tatum, 31 points, 4 rebounds, 8 assists, 1 steal, 2 blocks, 9 of 18 from the field, 3 of 7 from deep, and 10 of 12 from the line. He was a man amongst boys. He was a man amongst boys. 
And by the way, yes, Kevin Durant did get lost on his game winner. He is also at fault for that. Now, again, I'm not going to be that guy, but we are very harsh on certain guys. And if LeBron did that, I'd be on his head. So we're going to have to be on Kevin's head as well. Celtics won nothing. What a series. I literally just can't wait for the next game. I'm actually going to go out of order here. I'm going to talk about the Suns game first because it's a little bit less to talk about. Uh, Suns and Pelicans. I thought the Pelicans were clearly outmatched. Again, same as the Hawks. Tired from the game the other night against us. And the Suns just had this the championship road starts here kind of attitude to them. Especially Devin Booker. And I thought Chris Paul did a really admirable job. And I'm really shocked at this. He let Booker like dominate the ball the first three quarters. He just let it happen. He did not fiend. He did not want to get on the ball. He just sat off the ball. Of course, he doesn't move off the ball, but he's still a threat to catch and shoot. And Devin Booker was doing his thing, hitting his threes, getting in the mid-range. Hot star. Had like eight points in like the, he had like eight points in the first three minutes. And then the, on the other end, you just see Phoenix's defense and how good it is. How Mikhail Bridges and Jay Crowder are the perfect three and D wings that can guard Ingram and McCollum. They fight over screens, and and Aiton does such a good job in drop coverage because he knows Jay Crowder and Mikhail Bridges are getting over those screens so well. He knows that he doesn't have to come up too far. He can play both men at a really solid level, and Valanchunas is not a lob threat, so he doesn't have to go is no vertical spacing there. He just has to worry about showing, recovering, playing two at once. And DeAndre Ayton had such a great game. He was a commanding presence in the paint. And he was hitting his mid-ranges. And again, what have I said all season, Dime Dropper fam? The key to the Phoenix Suns championship relies with DeAndre Ayton. And he did everything he needed to last night. The Pelicans, though, did not quit. They still fought back here and there. But... You know, Brandon Ingram, CJ McClellan, they started. They tried to fight. And by the way, I love how fast the Suns were playing on some of the misses, especially to start. Devin And Chris Paul, that's that's a realization probably he had from last year when he slowed the pace down. Even if you can't run back and forth, stay back. You're the last line of defense of the point guard. I was taught that in basketball because I remember I, I was playing on some teams that had no rebounding. So I would try to dive on the offensive glass, but then nobody would be back. My guys would leak out, and it would be my fault because you're the last line of defense of the point guard. So... Chris Paul did a good job of, you know, staying back, outletting the ball, and letting Book and the and Bridges and the Wings kind of get out in transition. Um, Tor- I think it was Torrey Craig and Cam Johnson had a nice link up for a lob. Cam Johnson, a six-man-of-the-year candidate, and rightfully so, was fantastic. But DeAndre Ayton, I thought he was awesome. And then Chris Paul started getting going a little bit in the non-Booker minutes in the second quarter. But when the Pelicans cut it down to six, and again, another really good performance by Larry Nance Jr. for the Pelicans. He's starting to see more, show more. But Booker started getting a little cold, and the fourth quarter was all CP3. Vintage Chris Paul takeover. He had been dormant all game, and all of a sudden, he just went ballistic. First, they chose to go under a screen on pick and roll. Okay, three in your eye. Then, they go drop coverage. Okay, step up, three in your eye. Then, one-on-one, switch everything. Larry Nance switching. Chris Paul, lull him to sleep, pull up in his mouth for three. Then they gave him his right hand, guys. Tried to ice him. Don't give him his right hand. You can Once you have Chris Paul, when you're on Chris Paul's left shoulder and he's going right, you are at his mercy. He pulled up for his classic pound in mid-range, got to the basket twice, even blew by guys two times with some beautiful change of pace. So, again, the way to combat Chris Paul in, in this Chris Paul day and age Switch everything scheme with guys that can guard. Larry Nance, clearly, he did it against the Clippers, against Reggie Jackson. Could not do it against the more skilled 
more clever Chris Paul, who completely dominated and took over that game and brought the Suns home. And it was just a typical Suns performance, you know, defending at such a high level, amazing wings. You know, Mikhail Bridges, I thought was really solid. As he's so consistent. Four of nine from the field, 11 points, five rebounds, three assists. Jay Crowder got in foul trouble. He only had one point, but I actually thought his defense was still good. Ayton, 21 points, nine rebounds, 10 of 15 from the field. It was awesome hitting his mid-ranges. Booker, he got a little colder as the game went on, but he set the tone. He, he started out great. 25 points, four rebounds, eight assists, and only one turnover. So great playmaking by Book, making all the right reads. The, thing, the game is just slowing down for him. Eight of 19 from the field. Four of eight from three. And then Chris Paul, after having a very quiet first three quarters, just has the best stat line of anyone. 30 points, seven rebounds, 10 assists, three steals, one block, and only two turnovers on an incredible 12 for 16 shooting and four of six from deep. He was just incredible in that fourth quarter. And then Cam Johnson at 13 points on five of six shooting as well to go for the Suns to win 110-99. Valanchunas, 18 points and 25 rebounds, 13 on the offensive glass. But it just, I don't know, a lot of them were just like miss and getting your own rebound, Moses Malone style. And it just didn't impact the game as much as you'd think looking at that stat. Ingram, 18 points on 6 of 17. He was truly bothered in his first true playoff game. CJ was really bothered as well. Started getting going in the fourth quarter before Chris Paul took over. 25 points for him on 9 of 25 shooting. So he had an inefficient night for sure. And then Larry Nance, 14 points, 6 rebounds on 5 of 8. So the Suns up one nothing. That should be a sweeper, a five-game series. And now we're going to end it with the last one of them all. And that is the Bulls and the Bucks. A series that I thought would be five games, as I talked about in my preview with 808s. But, oh boy. Giannis Antetokounmpo. I'm starting to think he's the best player in the NBA. And I'll tell you why. He's figured it out. He figures out what he needs to do and what he doesn't need to do. He affects the game so much on both ends, and he just has that relentlessness, that it factor. He, unlike Kevin Durant, he embraces physicality. He generates easy baskets. He doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't fall in love with it. He doesn't have a jump shot to fall in love with. So, and that's some things he used to do in the bubble in 2019. He used to shoot jumpers too much unnecessarily. Immediately in the game against Chicago, he went right to being either the roller on screen and roll or catching the ball elbow or beneath. And the the Bulls strategy was really good, actually, by Billy Donovan. Just hard double him every time. You can't go load up City on Giannis because he will attack the space. And you better build that wall. You want to build that wall on Giannis, fine, he'll make the read. Or, or you want to get run over, pick your poison. And when he's deep enough, it doesn't matter about that loading up anymore. Loading up is much easier when, you have, when you're anticipating the driving lanes. When he's already around the block area, you're screwed. That's what I'm saying about Kevin Durant. Giannis has understood he needs to do his work off the ball. And he does it. And he was making such quick reads, like just seeing the plays one step ahead, making even better passes than Durant, Durant or Tatum were. And the, the Bucks start out hitting those shots. And Giannis start out with like nine points in the first. The Bulls were cold. But the strategy still... And yeah, I'm saying Giannis is the best player too because of last year as well. Like it's a continuation from last year. I know his jumper has gone better. When he made a three in the first quarter, I was like, uh-oh, uh-oh. But he did regress to the mean. And I think, at, I think he finished one of four from deep. Yeah, he did. But 
He was just dominant, dominant, creating a good shot for them every time. He got them a 13-point lead in the first quarter single-handedly. All those shots were coming from him. He catches the ball, hard double-team, kick. And they're hard doubling because they're afraid. They're afraid. But anyways, the Bulls were still competitive, though. That's what I liked. They stayed with it. They they clamped up on defense themselves. And they only and Vucevic, I thought, was really aggressive. He didn't shoot well. He was like 9 for 25. 9 for 27, but he was the most aggressive bull. He was picking and popping and shooting a lot. He was trying to go at guys one-on-one. And I thought somebody who was not doing himself any favors was DeMar DeRozan. He wanted to try to, if he wanted to try to rip off that label of being a playoff choker, so he didn't do himself any favors last night either. Zach Levine and the boys. Caruso, by the way, completely took over that game defensively. It was actually insane, the amount of defensive plays he was making. And Kobe White even got hot for a second. But overall, they just couldn't make the big plays when it when they really counted at the end. DeRozan, Levine. Levine took a really bad shot at the end for a three. And the Bucks just, their defense rolled it out. But they did a good job. They took the rest of the team out of rhythm with their double-team strategy with Giannis. And... It didn't let the Bucks play free-flowing offense. So I thought the Bulls competed really well. They're going to need better from DeRozan. Had DeRozan played better, they could have won that game. Literally, that's simple. So let's read the lines um, for the game as we finish this out. Thanks for joining. If you guys stayed for this whole thing, I really admire you. Thanks for appreciating my work. I try to give you guys the best and try to talk about everything I can. DeRozan, 18 points, 8 rebounds, 6 assists. 6 for 25 from the field. Playoff DeRozan. Come on, man. Nikola Vucevic, 24 points, 17 rebounds, 8 of those offensive, so he did dominate the glass. 9 for 27 from the field, so that's 33%, and then 2 of 10 from 3. And then Zach Levine, 18 points, 10 rebounds, 6 of 19 in his first playoff game, 2 of 10. Needs to be better. Played better in the second half with his step backs and tough shots, but needs to be better. As I said, Kobe White, 12 points. For the Bucks. Middleton did not have a great game, but they defended well Holiday and Middleton. One of the biggest reasons that they won. Middleton only had 11 points, though. Five boards, six assists, seven turnovers, which is, enti- which is entirely too much. The part of the reason why the Bucks stayed in it was c- the Bucks let the Bulls stay in it was because they t- had 21 turnovers. Anyway, Middleton, four for 13, one of seven from deep. Drew Holiday, 15 points on six of 16 shooting and one of four from three. Six rebounds, six assists, 15 points. And then Giannis, 27 points, 16 rebounds, only three assists. Two blocks, five turnovers, so a bit too much. 10 of 19 from the field, 1 of 4 from 3, 6 of 11 from the line. That needs to be better. But the Bucks win it 93-86 and take care of business. We'll see if the Bulls can get any closer. That may have been their best chance to steal. But if Levine and DeRozan can both shoot efficiently and Caruso still dominates defensively like that, well, who knows? Thanks for joining me tonight, guys, or today. Whenever you're watching this, listening to this, make sure you subscribe. Make sure you leave a review. Uh, and tell me what you think about the, the about the recap. Thanks, and enjoy the playoffs. We'll be back tomorrow.